0: I had the honor of reconnecting with Sean Stevenson. We last connected for episode 248 earlier this year. He is the author of the USA Today national bestseller, Eat Smarter, and the international bestselling book, Sleep Smarter. He is also the creator of the Model Health Show, the OG of health podcasts in the United States with millions of listener downloads each month. Today, we connected and discussed his new cookbook, Eat Smarter Family Cookbook, We discuss the culture around family, the value and the impact on our children, current statistics on how childhood obesity has been impacted by the pandemic, as well as statistics on adults, why family meals are on the endangered list and how to create a culture in your home that will facilitate connection, the impact of eating in isolation, the role of ultra processed foods, and so much more. I know you will find this conversation invaluable. And I hope that you will check out his book, Eat Smarter Family Cookbook. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. Thank you, Sean, for coming back on the podcast. I'm really excited not only to wish you happy birthday virtually, but also talk about your new book. And I'd really love to start the conversation talking about What has been the research discussing the net impact of the pandemic on our health, especially children? I know that we both share a love and passion for our families. I think you do a particularly beautiful job talking about some of the things that have impacted family rituals, family communication, families enjoying meals together, nutrition together. But what is the research showing in terms of the net impact of the pandemic, especially on kids?
1: You know, what's so great is that we have a lot of data on this now, and it's kind of after the fact, unfortunately. And, you know, first of all, I want to thank you so much for the birthday, love. I was with you on your anniversary. I know. Recording, and I'm with you today for my birthday. And so it's just a really great kind of a full circle moment. But um, as far as the data, one of the things that really jumped out for me was some research published by the CDC looking at the annual rate of weight gain in children in the United States over the course of the first phase of the pandemic and all the related shutdowns and mandates and all those types of things. And what the researchers uncovered was that moderately obese children, which that is a significant percentage of children today, their annual rate of weight gain doubled over the course of, again, they're just taking a snapshot of about a year. And even children who are of normal weight, their annual rate of weight gain increased by over two pounds, and so not to mention children who are clinically obese and their annual rate of weight gain almost doubling as well. And so it's just like, what in the world is going on? Like, why would something like that happen? And this points to one of the most overlooked aspects of all of the related shutdowns and the mandates and you know, trying to create a, a structure where we're protecting ourselves, protecting our children, and then having all of these kind of residual problems or what would be in this category, unfortunately, labeled as collateral damage. And for me, the thing that really jumped out is there's this concept of something called recidivism. And basically, what that is pointing to is that when we have this excessive weight gain, when we're younger, it becomes much more difficult to reach a healthy weight or a healthy metabolic state when we get older. It kind of sets our internal thermostat higher. And because you could hear something like that, well, okay, well, that's just a temporary thing. No, that's, that's not what the data shows. And we know this also as adults, you know, once we start to put weight on, it becomes exceedingly more difficult to get it off. And not to mention, of course, the weight gained by adults over the pandemic as well. And there's a variety of different sources. The real numbers have not really come forward yet. But the thing is, even prior to that, we were on a trajectory that was scary. Uh, Prior to pandemic-related shutdowns, here in the United States, we were at a place where 42.5% of our citizens, American adults, were clinically obese. And that's not to mention, by the way, that number is based on BMI, Body Mass Index. It's not 100% accurate, of course. But, and I'll just share with you why, you know, because for example, somebody could be five foot 10 and be 210 pounds and be a running back. And then they're like categorized as overweight slash, you know, moderately obese. Right. And so it's just really going to be depend on, you know, body composition, that kind of thing. But what we're talking about is something that we can all see just looking out around us at the, in the environment, the majority of our citizens have Tip their way into obesity and or being overweight. And right now that number collectively being overweight and obese is somewhere in the ballpark of 250 to 270 million Americans. And so we're talking about the vast majority of our citizens up near 75, 80% of the population is now, according to BMI, up in the range of overweight or obese. And so this was prior, this was prior to all that's happened in the past couple of years. And now that's what we're really what we're looking at here. We're looking at, let's actually address the root cause of these issues. And of course, understanding things are going to happen. Some of the most unexpected, crazy things are going to happen that can make things worse. And so we really need to grab the bull by its horns and help to get our citizens and our families, our communities in a healthier place so that we're more resilient when the next thing happens. Whatever that is, that might be a societal thing. It might be a family thing, right? But things are going to happen. And so that's what really this is is dedicated to and where my research has been in the past couple of years. I've been working adamantly, ferociously behind the scenes, really looking at root cause with our epidemics of disturbances with metabolic health, uh, chronic diseases. And the last stat I'll share with you before we talk about root causes is the CDC's recent numbers. This was just published last year. The CDC has now determined that six out of 10 American adults or 60% of all United States adults have at least one chronic disease now. And 40% of American adults have two or more chronic diseases. So again, the majority of our citizens are not well. And so we're looking at a situation where if you are healthy, you are not normal. You're not within what is considered to be the normal state of health in our society. And I know in my heart, and I know you know this as well, we can change this. We can shift this. We can get ourselves to a tipping point to normalize health because this is not about vanity metrics. This is not about appearances and what things are supposed to be. We're talking about eliminating suffering. We're talking about being able to really maximize our life here on this planet and maximize our time with our families and doing the things that we love and creating a shield really Around our families and really looking out for our children who are really taking the worst of all of this right now. Because, you know, one of the common arguments would be that, yeah, well, if you just look at our lifespan has expanded despite all of these chronic disease issues. And unfortunately, what people number one, there's two parts to this. Number one, it's not that our lifespan has necessarily extended, we've really extended our suffering. We've really gotten to this place where. Yes, our life is longer, but we're not necessarily living longer, we're dying longer. And so we're kind of slowing the degradation in a way, superficially, but there's a lot more suffering in those kind of elderly years now. And so we're talking about quality of life. And we know that that's possible because we've got many places on the globe where people are living into their 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s, plus still maintaining faculties of their their memory functionality, being able to work and to play and to contribute to society. We know that those things are possible, but here in the United States, that's not what's happening. So that's number one. And number two, about 20 years ago, that consistent generation after generation after generation, far as far back in documented human history as we have, lifespan has continued to go up until about 20 years ago. That has now reversed. We are now living with the first generation that is not going to outlive our predecessors. Based on lifespan. All right. So something is dramatically wrong here where we have so much apparent innovation on the surface, and yet we are experiencing more disease and dysfunction than we ever have as a species. And so, again, we're here to talk about root cause. We're here to address those things and to really work on getting our families healthier.
0: Well, and it's interesting because you hear those statistics and they're staggering. As a clinician, I started in healthcare over 25 years ago, and I recall saying to a colleague of mine probably 20 years ago, we are really headed in the wrong direction because there's so much emphasis on prolonging life, but it's not focused on quality of life metrics. If And as an example, if your loved one's in the ICU and they're in their 90s, it's highly unusual that they're not going to have a constellation of comorbidities. And more often than not, most of the physicians I work with were very uncomfortable having conversations about end-of-life care. The nurse practitioners had no problems because we're very focused on quality of life metrics. And I'm making a generality, but for argument's sake, it's a, it's a purposeful one. And the conversation would be this 95-year-old person who's had a massive heart attack. They've got triple vascular disease. They've you know got a, a bunch of comorbidities. They have lung disease. They have renal disease. Let's put them on dialysis. And I would look at the... I would look at, you know, the family who didn't want that, but the physicians were uncomfortable to have those conversations. And so to your point, we can live longer, but at what expense? You know, I think that everyone listening wants to be able to walk and wants to be able to exercise and engage with their loved ones and have a high quality of life. They don't want to be bedridden. They don't want to be unable to move their bodies. They don't want to be in a position where they're taking 25 medications a day, and that more often than not is becoming this polypharmacy is becoming normalcy. And much to your point, you know, we are a nation that is becoming increasingly unhealthy. And for many times you leave the United States and you see how other people live and you start to recognize how incredibly unhealthy we are. And so I love that we're focused on finding out what is at the root of these changes that are occurring. And in your estimation, looking at the research, What are the things that are contributing the most to this poor metabolic health, this degradation in relationships with our loved ones, this evolving pandemic of poor health? What are some of the biggest contributors in your estimation?
1: Absolutely. And I know that a lot of people have discussed these things, of course, on your show and just conversations that a lot of people have been exposed to, but we're going to look at this through a different lens. And we all know the basic things that our genes expect from us to have healthy expression. We need good nutrition. We need movement, sleep, rest, and recovery. We need an ability for our bodies to optimally manage stress. Our relationships play such a huge role. And one of my friends and colleagues at Harvard University, he's the lead researcher, the director of the longest running longitudinal human study on longevity and they found that in their data and they didn't necessarily want to believe it and they had to like double check with other researchers that our relationships are the most impactful determinant on our lifespan the quality of our relationships in particular and so all of these things are are built into our DNA right these are things that we evolved having exposure to for healthy outcomes and for whatever reason and you know, we can get into some of those reasons that has been skewed to the degree that we're seeing all of this manifestation of disease symptoms. And unfortunately, we get into this kind of game of placing labels on people because we have a manifestation of certain symptoms. And then once that happens, we get that label and then that's my identity. And what most disease expressions are, are adaptations by the body. They're adaptations to continue functioning under unideal circumstances. They're adaptations to keep us alive despite whatever internal turmoil is happening. And so it's looking at this, this label of disease as something completely different, which is what it really is. Again, it's just an adaptation by our bodies. And if we just take type 2 diabetes, for example, and this is at epidemic proportions as well, here in the United States, the latest data is indicating that upwards of 130 million Americans are now type 2 diabetic or pre-diabetic. And this is something, this was a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine one of the most prestigious journals in the world. And there's a paper published uh, not too long ago. And effectively the title was 200 years of diabetes. And just looking at data, like literally a 200 year time span and seeing everything being pretty consistent until about 40 years ago, when since that point, up until recently, rates of type two diabetes have essentially quadrupled just in that time span, consistent, consistent, All of those years, decades and decades and decades, over 100 years, and suddenly it exploded. And what type 2 diabetes really is at its core, this is, again, it's an adaptation where our body is experiencing this heavy influx of blood glucose, right, through a variety of forms of of food. And we'll talk more about this in a moment, but predominantly carbohydrate, sugar-based things that then, you know, that is getting transferred into into glucose in, in our bloodstream and our bodies have to do whatever it can to shuttle that glucose somewhere because it's very dangerous to just be roaming around in our bloodstream. It can start to tear things apart, basically, if there's too much. In particular, capillaries, you know, things that are like in our extremities. This is why you see some of the outcomes long-term with diabetes being loss of vision, a loss of limbs, loss of function, and neuropathic pain and things like that. And so understanding that this is the case, our body With all of that influx of, and I'm just going to be 1,000 with you, for myself personally, prior to making this transformation of my own health, I ate fast food at least 300 days a year, and I'm not exaggerating. And the data indicates that I'm not necessarily unique in that. And so I'm coming from that place, living in what's deemed to be a glorified food desert in the inner city, and government assistance, we got food from charities, and What we were inundated with around in my environment was fast food and ultra-processed food at every turn. I couldn't escape it. It's all that I knew, all right? And so I'm making my tissues out of these foods. I'm making the fuel that's running processes in my body out of this very low-quality material. And most of it is based on sugar. And so consuming this stuff, it would not be abnormal for my blood sugar to spike up over 200. You know, and this is happening for a lot of people on a regular basis. You chugging down, you know, one of my favorite beverages was like, for example, Mountain Dew. You're drinking that stuff. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Not only is it just all of this glucose, it's delivered in liquid form. It's one of the most disruptive things to our metabolism. And so over time doing that practice, which I used to go to the 7-Eleven by our house for my mother every single day. And I'm talking about summer vacation. All right. All right but every day i would cross a street that i shouldn't have been crossing it was a pretty like multi-lane never mind i was going to 711 <laughs> and i would get her it started off as a big gulp and super big gulp then they came out with the double big gulp and the container was so big that you had to fold it up in the store yourself like it was flat and so you op- pull it out of the section and then you put it together you do like arts and crafts and then fill it up with all the soda And my mother would drink that every day. And if I wasn't there, she would get it herself. And so this was, I'm not exaggerating, every single day full of Pepsi. That was her drink of choice. And seeing my mother's weight gain just happening, really exponential growth. Like it would just jump up to these different degrees. And it's just like, I wonder why, like why? Of course, you know, she's drinking all of this liquid sugar, not to mention all the ultra processed foods. And so I'm saying all this to say that, When we're doing this and all that sugar is getting shuttled into our bodies, insulin is getting spiked. You know, your pancreas is releasing insulin to help to shuttle that into your cells, in particular, your muscle cells and fat cells. But what if you don't have a lot of muscle? Your fat cells are going to eventually become insulin resistant because it just can't handle all of that. And we didn't evolve having that much exposure. And so it's just going to create an adaptation to like, we got to send this to another part of the body to figure this out. Your liver is going to take a lot of this and non Alcoholic fatty liver disease is one of the fastest growing conditions as well. And all that dysfunction, your liver is responsible for so many aspects of our health, but also it's storing some glycogen, like converting some of that into glycogen, but it can only store so much. And so once we reach a certain point with our liver, your liver has to convert that into something else. And so this is where lipogenesis takes place. And your liver can literally create fat and package it in VLDL particles, very low dense lipoprotein. And now we've got a situation where, whoa, the chances of inflammation happening and a cardiovascular event are going up. Not to mention the pancreas taking all of this heat over time, still churning out insulin as it's supposed to, but now the cells aren't listening to it, right? The cells are not, it's basically getting sent to spam. And so now we're at this place where we get this label, this disease label, and we're broken, right? I have type 2 diabetes now. Here's some metformin. Eventually we can look at giving you more insulin. Even though your body's still producing it with type 2 diabetes, let's just shuttle more in to try to yell, spam, absolutely spam it. Like these Instagram posts now, like they could I never mind. I'm not even going to open that up. But <laughs> all of this spam. So it's just like you have to pay attention now to get some of this glucose into your body. We're not addressing the root cause. And so let's talk about now and steer the conversation towards why are we in this situation to begin with? Why do we have that kind of exposure? And as I mentioned, we're looking at this through through an entirely new lens, and this is truly looking at the root cause here. And what it really boils down to is our culture. We have a culture that enables us to access these things at will, with great ease. And we have a culture that makes it challenging to access health-affirming things. As I mentioned, I was inundated with ultra-processed foods in my environment. And I said that I'm not unique in this. A lot of people have heard this by now, but the BMJ published a study noting that American adults currently, right now, about 60% of the average adult's diet in the United States is made of ultra processed foods. So these are foods that are so far removed from anything natural. So they're so denatured. This is like, again, at some point, maybe it was like corn and it was you know utilized as some of the particulate matter from that corn and maybe made into high fructose corn syrup. And then eventually that corn becomes Lucky Charms, right? It has no resemblance to anywhere that it came from. That's what an ultra processed food is. And what I, of course, that's shocking. Like 60% of our diet, that's crazy, but that was me and worse. But what people don't realize yet, and I'm thankful, but also I have a sense of urgency around this because this is the first book published with this data in it. And that's my new book, really focused on family wellness. And this was recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA. And they looked at the ultra-processed food intake by American children. And so they looked at children from the age of two to 19, so children and adolescents, and tracked their ultra-processed food intake from 1999 to 2018. And they found that in 1999, the average American child was eating over 61% ultra-processed foods already. And then 20 years later, 2018, the average American child is now eating almost 70% ultra processed foods is making up their diet. And so we have a culture that is allowing, that has created this exposure for our children to have this to be such a huge part of their reality. And so what I'm saying by this, and let's unpack what culture really is. So the definition of culture is essentially the shared beliefs, values, attitudes, and behaviors of a group that is then passed on to future generations. Okay. So these are the collective attitudes, beliefs, values, behaviors, what we do that we inherently pass on to our children. That's what culture is at its core. And so there are cultures in the unit. Let me step back. There are cultures still today that are hunter-gatherer cultures, for example. There are still a few left, but Within that context, we'll talk about the Hadza, for example. Yes, they've had some interaction with modern humans, quote, sophisticated humans. But for the most part, they have a hunter-gatherer creed or tribe or way of life. And so part of the inherent cultural belief that their community has is that if I don't move, I will die because me procuring my food is dependent upon me moving. All right. So movement equals life. If I stop moving, if I become sedentary, I will die. That is an ingrained cultural belief. And if if we just look back even prior to when there were many more hunter-gatherer civilizations and tribes throughout history, all right, that was the tenet underneath. They don't have to consciously think of that, but it was built in. If I don't move, I die. In our culture, here in the United States, movement is optional. It is incredibly optional. So much movement has been taken out of the process of procuring our food to the degree, literally, I can sit in my chair, push a couple buttons on my phone and have just about any food you can imagine put right into my hand. I can leave the door open for the Uber Eats person, just hand me the bag. Right Now, here's the cool thing. That's cool. We could do that. That's cool to have that kind of option. But is that normal? Is that something our genes expect from us to be so far removed from our food, from where it comes from, from the preparation and from are essentially also looking at the quality of those foods, because that's another thing with that hunter-gatherer tribe is they're eating foods that are very close proximity to their natural source, right? So humans have evolved. We've had processing of food. So we might, you know, have that, uh, the animal that they hunt and, and have some cooking practices or having some different processing methods for something like, you know, maybe chocolate beans getting crushed down or olives getting crushed and turning into olive oil. We've been doing that for a long time. Those are minimally processed foods. It's not that processing is bad. It's that when we get into this category of ultra processed foods, where not only is it so denatured, but also we have all of these synthetic ingredients, man-made chemicals, additives, preservatives, food dyes, the list goes on and on, that we know. We've got mountains of data affirming how it damages our health, especially the health of our children. And so within that hunter-gatherer tribe, part of their exposure, their culture is that This is the food that we eat. We have to work to get it and we eat it close to its source. They're not really aware currently that they can just go to 7 Eleven and do like I did if they're thirsty and get a super big gulp, right? That's not a part of their culture, right? For me, it was normal, it's a daily thing. I went across the street to 7 Eleven every day. And if I wasn't just getting sodas for myself, my family, my little brothers and sisters, the food there is one of my favorite things. They had the hot dogs on that little rotation thing. You know, sl- <laughs> I mean, they're already dead, but they're like, I don't know. They're like zombie zombified. They're like hummifying <laughs> these hot dogs. And my favorite thing was uh, the nachos with chili and cheese. And so you get the nachos. I got to a place, I don't know if I've said this before, but instead of just pumping some nacho cheese and chili on top of the nacho chips, I would take the chips out of the container I would put chili and cheese on the bottom of the tray and then put the cheese, the chips (laughs) on top and then pump the cheese and the chili. Well, first of all, why are we pumping meat from a pump? Like, that's really weird. And so I was just like engulfing this stuff. And then funny enough, I would have these side effects of heartburn, of this discomfort. And I would tell my mom, like, oh, I don't feel good. She was like, just drink a white soda. All right. So it's just like, even the food was giving me feedback that this is hurting me. But my culture informed me that that was just a deficiency of 7-Up. That's what I was experiencing. (laughs) You're just deficient in 7-Up. Forget that. And so that's really what we're, we're addressing here is targeting cultural change. And I'm telling you, this is so powerful once you really get this and understand that we're existing in a culture right now that is to be healthy, as I mentioned earlier, you are abnormal. That's the culture that we exist in right now. But here's the cool thing. We have the power to create microcultures. Number one, cultural change starts with ourselves. And then it it really starts to become exponentially more powerful when we're doing this within our household and creating a microculture within our household. And this is one of the things that I've seen over and over again. And and I know that this is going to lead to that tipping point that I mentioned earlier. The cool thing is that once we create a culture of health and fitness and connection and love within our own household... The cool thing about a culture is that when you go into another culture, you take your culture with you. We can't help but do that. We are a product of our environment. We're a product of our culture. And so no matter where I go, I'm taking this culture with me. And so when people see me, when people see my family, they see what's possible. They get an opportunity to see what health and connection looks like. And that's what I didn't have. When I was living in those conditions that I was living in, I didn't have healthy examples. And so that's what made it so difficult. I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to feel good. I wanted to be successful, but I didn't have any examples on what that looked like. And so for me, it took a tremendous amount of trial and error, trial and success trying to figure things out. And this is why I'm so passionate about this is that now we have the opportunity to replicate this, right? To deliver an incredible podcast or to deliver a book where people can get a blueprint for how all this stuff works. But most importantly, If we can stack conditions in your favor, culturally create an environment around you to make the choices easy. That's really where the magic is.
0: Well, and I think you bring up such a beautiful point that the way to make the most impact is to start with our own families, setting a good example for our own children, helping them build good habits that they can then take with them when they leave the nest, go to college or at a friend's house. And so one of the things that really stood out to me when I was reading your book was, Talking about the role of family meals, how critically important this is. And you actually mentioned in the book, Why Are Family Meals on the Endangered List? And I, I started to reflect back on the impact of the pandemic and how it, you know, we went from two kids going to school, both in middle school, to everyone being home, everyone working from home. And there was a solid six month stretch where we never ate at the same time. You know, the kids had lunches that were just whenever they could grab and go. Dinner became the same kind of thing. And I remember saying to my kids how disconnected I felt from them because we weren't sharing as many meals together. And you bring up the point in the book about how important it is to eat together and the statistics around sharing meals together. Something like, Harvard said that families that eat dinner together consume more fruits and vegetables. They drink less soda. They consume less processed food. So that shared experience is so important. Our, our children, even as teenagers, are still modeling behavior when they see how their parents are living their lives. So let's unpack the whole concept of family meals, being able to learn how to cook all the way up to sharing those meals together.
1: Absolutely. And so this is again, looking at addressing cultural change, but also using really sound, deep science. So current science, but also just looking at evolutionary biology, looking at how humans evolved, because for thousands of years prior to our current generation, food centered around more than just the act of eating. Food was really about family. It was about sharing. It was about cooperation. It was about community. It was about celebration. All of these things were baked into the process of food and the process of taking something from the environment and putting it into our bodies and making tissues out of these things. However, we've quickly devolved from a species that ate together on a consistent basis, prepared food together, right? hunting, gathering, the preparation, eating together, the celebration. All of those things were a part of tribal culture to more recently more and more eating in isolation and in front of not mind-numbing media, all right? Again, this is not to vilify that because kicking back and having some delicious food of your choice and watching your favorite show or catching a, a YouTube video or whatever the case might be, that's all good. That's cool that we have opportunity like that. But when that becomes the norm, when that becomes what you do pretty much every time you eat a meal and or a daily thing that you're doing, my question was, could we be missing out on an incredibly important genetic input that's protecting our health? And that's really what the data was indicating. As you mentioned, that research from Harvard. And I was shocked. First of all, when I came across their data, all this data that had been, been compiled about family eating behaviors and health outcomes, I wish I couldn't believe people didn't know this stuff. And so what the researchers determined, as you mentioned, when families eat together on a consistent basis, they have much higher intake. Of vital nutrients that effectively help to reduce the risk of chronic diseases and also far less consumption of ultra processed foods. But from there, there were so many, and by the way, those researchers found that, whereas this was something that pretty much every person, tribal family construct was eating together. Today, the average American family, only about 30% of families eat together on a consistent basis. All right. So this is something that is on the endangered species list. And so I came across another study. This was published in the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior. And these were researchers we looking at, and this really hit me. And it was kind of one of the big catalysts to writing this book. They were looking at children, minority children, who would generally be in the construct of a low-income uh, community, which is where I come from. And so this really gave me an important insight and also offered up some hope that regardless of our circumstances, could eating together be protective for our children, And so what they uncovered was that children who eat together with their families four times a week had significantly less intake of ultra-processed foods and much higher intake of real foods, in particular fruits and vegetables, basically five servings a day, most days of the week when eating together with their family on a consistent basis. And the researchers noted that they ate significantly less ultra-processed foods, even without their eating together with their family, when- family meals included rarely or never having the television on while eating. All right. And so there's something about that television, the advertisements and all this stuff, or just the distraction from our bodies that then led to eating less ultra processed foods. Or if we're watching that stuff, and I know what it is, you know, I've, those commercials, those Pizza Hut commercials back in the day, just like how they <laughs> tear the pizza and it's like, the cheat. it never does that in real life. But it's just like, that's so attractive. You know, like we all know what that's like. And it's it's a delicious part of life. It's not to again vilify the pizza. It's just like if we're constantly getting inundated because of our culture, they're able to advertise all of these ultra processed foods. They're not advertising for anything real. There's no real food advertisements. It's all ultra processed foods. Toucan Sam, follow your nose. You know that damn leprechaun. You know the Lucky Charms and you know the Fruity Pebbles. That was my first, one of my first food memories was eating Fruity Pebbles with my great-grandmother. All right. She took me, I got on the senior citizen bus with her. And I remember all the little, you know, the other senior citizens, they were like, oh, is this your grandson? He's (laughs) pinching my cheeks and all that stuff. And we went to the grocery store. We came back to her place. She poured me a bowl of Fruity Pebbles, changed my life. I was like, this, what, this exists, you know? And again, that's, for her, this, speaking her love language, she wanted to give me something that I would enjoy as a child, but our culture has made it so that she doesn't know that this is going to potentially cause metabolic dysfunction for me, but that there's not even real food. There's nothing real about it. And so that study really, for me, again, if my family would have known, if my parents would have known, not to say that they would have done it, but they would have had an opportunity to choose like, okay, I can reduce the risk of- possible chronic disease in my children, if we eat together on a regular, just a semi-regular basis, because I'm not exaggerating as well. The times that I sat down and ate a meal with my family, I can count on my two hands, right? We just didn't do that. And those times that we did, it was a holiday of some sort. We ate at the same time frequently, but it would be, again, we kind of dispersed. I ate with my brother and sister frequently at the same time, but, you know, it's always, you know, we just didn't have that kind of family network And now let's lead this into some actual, like, what are we helping here with our children? Well, there's two studies. This was published. One of them was published in the journal JAMA, JAMA Network. So Journal of the American Medical Association Network and the journal Pediatrics. And what these researchers found was that, and this is one of the big takeaways from today for everybody. When families ate together, when families ate together just three times a week, there was a dramatic reduction in obesity outcomes in the children and there was a reduced expression of disordered eating in the children as well so there's a significant impact on reducing the rate of obesity and eating disorders in children when families eat together three meals a week or more three appears to be that kind of minimum bar of of success you know that minimum barrier of entry right so let's make this a mandate for ourselves let's take it upon ourselves to create a new culture Right. And so this might be going from zero to three or one to three or whatever the case might be for a lot of people. And so that's why I provided so many tools and strategies in the book. Like, how do we actually make this happen? But the first thing is number one, awareness. And the second thing is deciding, you know, just deciding to do this to protect our children. Because, and so I'm a big why person, as you know. And I'm just like, why? Like, how, how is this even possible? How's this eating together reducing the risk of obesity in children? Like, what, some of the obvious things that come up would be something like when you know, when there's a family dinner that's scheduled, we'll just say that every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, those are family dinner nights. If this is just a part of your culture, it's already there, unconscious as it might be, that we have this family dinner and there's like this proclivity towards like planning, right? What are we going to eat? Whereas today, a lot of us, we could stumble into these meals a lot, all right? And so there's just a natural inclination towards- planning for it. And when, a lot of times when we do that, we're going to plan for like what we deem to be a health, a healthy meal construct, which nine times out of 10, that's actually going to be better than ultra processed foods of any sort. right? And so that's part of it. And another part is the psychology and what this is doing with our nervous system, because really the dinner table is a unifier in many senses, because this is a time for the family to connect that has often been disconnected for the day. Living their respective lives. And so, this is a place where you get to kind of unify and offload things to talk about things, to check in, right? To actually be able to see your child and to be able to pick up cues, what they're saying, nonverbal cues, whatever the case might be. It's inherently going to create more of a connection. If you are paying attention, because the attention part could be a problem, right? You might be eating together, but still having some poor outcomes. And this could be because of the, the attention not really being there. And I talk about that in the book as well and how our devices, even having the cell phone at the table pulls away. And I share some fascinating studies on how that distracts our minds and reduces our ability to pay attention just as if our phone is in sight. All right. And so, again, proactively for families, creating a new kitchen culture and a new dinner table culture, and especially if we've become addicted, which we are all right, this is a safe space. We could admit this. We're addicted to our technology. We're addicted to our devices. It's so easy to pick up our phone and just swipe right to a social media app just to check. Let me just check. Before you know it, you're there. And this is because we have brilliant engineers who have crafted these platforms to be highly addictive for our brains. It's like a little slot machine in our pocket, constantly looking for that hit of you know, there's a, dopamine. Of course, has been brought into this conversation a lot, but there's far more of the dopamine that's in, in in the mix here, and also there's a buildup of pressure when we're not on it, right? So we start to build up this kind of like pressure that we need to relieve, just by tapping on that app. On that, see that there's there's a. Anyways, we build up. Never mind. I'm not <laughs> going to open that up. Tapping that app, and so here's the thing: we can proactively understand. Number one, yes, this is an issue here, and we can start to leverage our psychology with addiction, knowing that that's going on. We have, First of all, we have to admit that we have a problem, all right? If we're just like, no, it's not a big deal, then we're lying to ourselves. And so here's one of the core things with basically habit swapping, right? Dropping what we deem to be a negative habit, putting in a positive habit. Most often people fail because they're replacing something they really enjoy with something that they don't, all right? We need to replace the behavior with something Of equal or greater value. And so we have to find ways that we can create more joy in that family connection, right? We have to find ways. And there's so many cool things, so many cool ideas that you can employ and so that you look forward to it. And also, of course, there's an energy uh, context here as well. A lot of this stuff is more difficult when we're tired, when we're stressed, when we're drained. And I'm here to tell you, just like getting to bed and getting a good night's sleep, sometimes we just want to Relax, watch a bunch of shows, but relaxation is different from restoration. And the same thing holds true with I'm too stressed to eat with my family and missing out on the fact that that's restorative. All right. And so this was done by um, some researchers looking at uh, workers from IBM. And this was actually published in the journal Family and Consumer Sciences. And what the researchers uncovered was that when workers were able to sit down to make it home in time to sit down and have dinner with their families, their work morale stayed high and their productivity, all those things. But as soon as their work started to cut into their ability to spend time with their family at the dinner table, their work morale was plummeting. Levels of stress were increasing. And this couples with some of the pretty well-known data now, but some people might not have heard this yet. Again, published in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, up to 80% of physician visits today are for stress-related illnesses. The stress component of so many of these chronic diseases is that kind of unifying aspect of our chronic disease epidemics. All right. So could this process of eating together with people that we love, family and friends are included as well, be one of those things that acts as a powerful stress defense mechanism, stress relief mechanism. And I'm here to tell you based on the data that absolutely is.
0: Well, and it's really interesting because when we are around people that we love and feel connected to, we release oxytocin. And oxytocin is this hormone that helps lower cortisol. And so I remind people that even when our teenagers push back and I, and you know, my kids are now 18 and almost 16, we do get some pushback about family dinners, but we've started saying, bring the girlfriends, bring your friend, they're welcome. So I always alleviate any, you know, distraction or, you know, type of conflict that will come up. And we do have a pretty strong no phone at the table, no TV being on. And I'll tell my kids, I was like, you need to understand that during the day, I might see you for five minutes because you're going to work, you're going to school, you're coming home, you're distracted, you're doing homework. But when we spend 30, 40 minutes preparing a meal, sitting down together, connecting, that is really valuable time. And I think for those of us that you know, maybe you have younger children, you're in the throes of child rearing, you know, the days are long, the years are short, as I like to say. I mean, you certainly understand this because your kids are are teens and and young adults. But I, I think it's one of those things that you just start to recognize that those shared moments of preparing meals together. My mom is Italian. So Italians, a lot of how they demonstrate their love is they cook for you. And so my kids know how to cook. They know how to, I have one that's a little bit of a food snob so he makes compounded butters and he does all these li- like elaborate things that he'll do alongside he's like the sous chef but that time we spend together is so important and i actually have said to my husband there are a lot of things that i would be willing to say aren't as important except for when we come together you know we try we aim for 3 days a week we probably get to consistently because of work schedules and everything else but i think it is certainly one of those things where you know, we're trying, and I think it's important to be transparent and say that, you know, we're not perfect. And I can tell you during the pandemic, it was certainly a bigger struggle. But understanding if we're dealing with chronic stress, if what most people are seeing their healthcare practitioners for is stress-mediated, oxytocin is a really important hormone. It can be, you know, involved in a lot of other activities, but that family connection, the love that you're feeling for one another when you're sitting down and feeling like you're listening to one another, you're hearing one another that is critically important.
1: Yeah, you just said, especially, and oxytocin is just one of these things that humans produce when in proximity to people that we care about. And it is one of the reasons why this works is that switching over from that sympathetic fight or flight kind of you know stress hormone related space that we're often in most of the day today, right? Th- that's even abnormal. We're not. We're supposed to have ebb, ebb and flows with that. But today it just kind of like, we're very good at going zero to a hundred. We're not very good at going 100 to zero. And so that's one of the reasons why this is shown to be so successful in reducing disease outcomes is that it helps to shut off stress. Now, there can be, of course, there's going to be stressful uh, interactions with family, All right, especially, again, kids, everybody has their own personality. But here's the superpower. You just mentioned this already, which is like, we actually know our family better than anybody. We know what excites them. We know what de-excites them. We know what irritates them. We know what inspires them. A lot of times though, we don't want to, we just want them to do what we want them to do. Let's just be completely honest about this. Relationships would be completely easy if people just don't mess up my vibe, just do what I want you to do. (laughs) But that's not what happens a lot of our lives. And so it's being able to develop these skills. But again, this is an energy equation as well, to have the energy to be more patient, to be more compassionate, to be more understanding. Because it's not that we can't be patient and compassionate when we don't feel well, it's just a lot harder. It's a lot harder when we're tired and stressed. And so we want to stack conditions in our favor. And it just, again, one of the things and as you said this, not being perfect about this, this is so important for all of us. We've got to drop that, especially as parents, this is not about perfection at all. We cannot try to live by that. It's just about stacking conditions, right? Doing the best that we can with what we have. And a good example of this is even last night, we were supposed to have our scheduled family dinner. My oldest son actually texted last week because he had missed a couple of, of days of our dinners. And he asked if we can do Tuesday. He asked. I didn't say anything. He said, could we have family dinner Tuesday? And so Tuesday, you know, we all were, you know, my wife had plans. She was going to make whatever it was. And then she got herself caught out here in the streets, birthday shopping for me, which I didn't <laughs> ask for, but Hey, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. But so she kind of got tied up and I was just like, babe, don't try and rush back. Like, just grab yourself something, you know, and um, we'll figure it out. So guess what I did? Cause this, at this point it was getting late. So I door dashed a meal. But I still sat down and ate with my boys. We still sat down and ate together. We put everything to the side. We just sat down and ate together because that. So, again, it's just like I'm making the most of that moment. And I got to connect with them, got to hear some stuff, got to see their interaction in a new way that I noticed. You know, my 11 year old, he's about to turn 12 in a couple of weeks. And my 22 year old, who's in his last semester of college, is about to turn 23. And I could see this dynamic you know, emerging. And it was really cool. Like, but I would have missed it had I just been like, "I'll oh, forget it. Let's just grab some food and, you know, watch TV or whatever the case might be. Not to say that that's bad, but I got to check in with my boys and um, it's so valuable for them and for me. And and last little piece here, you know, just looking at all the things that are going on in our lives today, it's a lot. We live it. Even that, like just the exposures that we have today, there's so much distraction. And so being able to unplug truly and to connect in the real world is something deeply human that, as we both have said, is on the endangered species list right now. And having that skill set, it's not just about us, of preparing food. You mentioned you know, your family have everybody being able to cook. I shared this study in the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook, looking at this kind of devolving ability of new generations to be able to cook for themselves. It is like becoming more and more rare. That young people know how to make meals. And that's scary because here's what's gonna happen they're going to eat more ultra processed foods because they don't know how to cook for themselves. And my kids, including like, I've been really online, like mentally with my youngest son and through this whole process. By the time he was like seven or eight, he could cook like breakfast foods, you know, make some eggs and cut up some fruit, stuff like that. And so just being able to add in a couple of these things, but Here's why sometimes it doesn't happen is because of being stressed, lack of patience, feeling time constraints. And this is a place that I struggled with, you know, a few years back, definitely much better with it now, but it's not about perfection, it is when my kids were offering to help or wanting to help in the kitchen. Hey, can, you know, can I help cook or can I do this? And we're like, no, not right now, buddy. You know, I'm just trying to trying to get us, you know, and all of those times that I would say no, And unknowingly missing out on the opportunity to invite him in to something that is going to be so valuable for him because of my stress or my energy. And so after coming across some of this data a few years ago, I I just started to make, turn that no into a yes. Like as soon as I felt that no coming up, just like, absolutely, let's do it. And switching my energy and being able to, you know, again, create an environment where he has all of these food experiences now of him helping out in the kitchen we got a bunch of little videos of when he could barely even talk, like helping to make like noodles, zucchini noodles and things like that, you know, and uh, it's just been, again, we've created a new family culture. I didn't come from this, but humans are not just a product of our environment. We're also creators of our environment. And so by getting this information in our hands, we can start to put these things in place.
0: Such a beautiful message. You know, one thing I want to congratulate you on when I got a copy of the book, the love for you and your family for one another is so conveyed in that beautiful photography. The recipes look delicious. I can't wait to try them. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you on social media if they're living underneath a rock, how to purchase your book, how to find out more about you and your beautiful family.
1: Oh, wow. Thank you so much. That means everything. Uh, they can pick up the book anywhere books are sold. It's the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook and you know Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local bookstores, all that good stuff. But going to eatsmartercookbook.com, we also have a very special event that we're doing for people who purchase the cookbook, which is we're doing the 2023 Family Health and Fitness Summit. And this is going to be uh, not just access to me, but some of the other leading folks in health and fitness who have kids and being able to hear how they've created a, a family culture of health, despite all of the craziness and the busyness in their lives and so like finding out how do they deal with picky eaters? How do they save money on groceries? How do they find time to even prepare healthy meals? And um, a couple of the people we've got, you know, Dr. Amy Shaw. We've got Layla Ali, uh, undefeated boxing champion, but also she's probably one of the busiest people I've ever met. She's got all these different things she's doing, but she makes dinner for her family, you know, three or four nights a week. She's like made that just a part of the culture. She also won the cooking show Chopped twice, by the way, she cooks. She's really? amazing. And, um, you know, uh, Chalene Johnson, the list goes on and on. Just people who found a way to be successful um, while being family oriented, because we're also part of our culture today is telling us that it's either or, right? You're going to have to sacrifice your family, essentially, and time with your family in order for you to be successful. And I'm here to tell you that there is a way. And it's being able to point our attention because if you ask, and you know this as well, like we ask people like what's most important to them? Oh, my family, right? My family's the most important thing. But does our life actually demonstrate that that is true? Where, where are our hours going? Because I know for myself personally, because of the culture that I came from, me spending all this time working so hard, right? I'm working so hard behind the scenes. My children never get to see me, but I'm putting clothes on their back, food on the table, all the things when what they need most is me what they need most is time with me to know that i love them that i'm proud of them that i see them that i acknowledge them and here's the cool thing is that that doesn't even have to be a lot of time by the way it's just about attention and focus the quality of that time and making it a priority and so this is really about creating a movement truly because our children mostly are the ones who are the victim of these abnormal shifts in our culture and i know we can do something about this so as mentioned, Eat Smarter Family Cookbook. People get free access to the 2023 Family Health and Fitness Summit. The ticket for the event is 297 So you get a free ticket. You can attend anywhere, it's a virtual event as well. So you could attend from anywhere in the world. And so you get that free as a bonus. So you can get the book from anywhere, but head over there to eatsmartercookbook.com and definitely take advantage of that. And um, I'm on Instagram, I'm at Sean Model, S H A W N model. And uh, yeah, of course, it's one of the cool places to hang out. And I definitely share some really good stuff over there. So those are the places that people can find me. Thanks again. It's my pleasure.
0: If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend.